agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. The government. Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by Cleveland Area Attorney and Republican factotum Jay Carson. Good morning, Mike. Hey, Jay, how are you doing this morning? I am I am uh, more chill than Beto O'Rourke uh, skateboarding <laughs> off in the Texas sunset. Oh, I love it! I love it. Well, that well, that's good. So with with, with that, let's you know let's get right to it. Now we will talk a little bit about Beto uh, toward the end of the show, but. Let's open, of course, with the big story this week, and that's the ongoing uh, saga, I guess, of the impeachment inquiry of President Trump. Now, of course, the big news this week was that the House finally voted to approve a formal inquiry process, which included setting procedural rules. And that was, as was expected, almost an entirely party line vote. All the Republicans opposed it, and all but two Democrats were in favor. Now, the lack of that formal process approved by a full House vote, that's been, in my view, the linchpin in Republicans' arguments that the process to this point has been an illegitimate uh, witch hunt, if you want to use the president's terms. Um, and under this measure that the House approved— <laughs> As opposed to legitimate witch Yeah, exactly. Witch yeah, right. Good point. Well, well you know, yeah. Well, let's see. Yeah. Anyway, but, you know, under this measure, both sides get equal extended time for questioning. I like the extended thing in particular. Republicans can call witnesses and issue subpoenas subject to either the approval of the committee chair or a majority vote of the committee. And the president's attorneys will also be able to cross-examine witnesses when the process moves to the Judiciary Committee, though the committee chair can block presidential attorneys from participating if the administration resists the committee's request for additional uh, information. So, Jay, to what extent do you think, first off, this this addresses those procedural concerns that Republicans have been raising. Uh, you know, I'd say maybe halfway. Um, I'm, okay. I'm not going to take the the whole the whole party line and say, um, uh, you know, this is uh, a completely legitimate process. But um, it still is not there. I think the the, the thing that that uh, I think is most notable is the well, you can subpoena witnesses and call your witnesses. If we think it's okay, um, and that that would seem to be inconsistent with with most ideas of due process. And I also want to make clear because we talked about this last time I was on when when we're talking about due process. I'm, I mean, I'm not speaking necessarily in terms of the criminal law constitutional due process uh, to which one would be entitled uh, in a criminal proceeding or or even a civil proceeding. Um, and and to which there would be some sort of remedy in court if if it wasn't provided, um, but rather right. just the if you're gonna if you're gonna do this, there needs to be a basic appearance of fairness if you're gonna be able to sell it to the, the American public. Because um, I think I think you and I are both on the same page that this this you know impeachment is a a political remedy, um, and it's a political process. Uh, but but that said, it's. You know the the legitimacy, the legitimacy uh, arises from from sort of whatever legitimacy the the body politic will give it, and I think that's why you need to have uh, some some uh, protections in there. Otherwise, it it is just a a uh, uh, fake witch hunt or a <laughs> well. <laughs> what, what was the what was the, what was your term? Uh, uh, illegitimate witch hunt. Illegitimate witch yeah. hunt. Yeah. Well, here here's the thing. I mean. 
a lot of people make this analogy, and you and I, at least I've made it, that you know the, the House is doing what's sort of the equivalent, the, the role of, of a grand jury in, in an indictment, and then the Senate is doing the trial. But it seems to me the public perception right. is not that. The public perception is that there are two trials, basically. And, and of course, that's not really what the process is. And, and you would, I, I'm sure you would admit that, but you're saying that it doesn't matter because basically if it's not constructed as two trials, then it's going to seem illegitimate regardless of what the, how the procedure's supposed to work. Because I think you'll certainly agree that the, the president, pre- President Trump, just like President Clinton before him and, and President Nixon before him, actually received a lot more uh, protections in the impeachment process than in the criminal process of, a, you know, a grand jury that the that the accused receives. And so it's it's really the analogy is not necessarily all that great because of that political nature of the process, I, I would say. Well, well, I mean, I, I would agree with you. The, the analogy isn't great. And that was something I was going to point out that. I mean, Democrats can't really have it both ways in that they say, well, this is a you know quasi-criminal proceeding, so this is like a grand jury. Um, but grand jury is is subject to other rules, which is actual you know real real secrecy and not uh, not selected leaks. Um, and it's also uh, subject to the 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 burden right of uh, uh, of a grand jury is um, uh, much lower. It's a lower hurdle to get over. Um, to indict someone, and I think uh, again, I don't know any case law on this or or any because I mean that's the other problem with talking with impeachment. There are uh, a total of three examples in all of our history, um, and each of them has its own sort of weird, uh, yeah. uh, you know, fact pattern that makes it a little different. So it's it's I mean anybody out there who says like they're an expert on impeachment is lying um, because right? the end Just is so small. There's, sure, there's, yeah. There, yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's there's very little to to have looked at and to seen and and to say this is this is definitely how we do it. Um but uh I, my sense is that you you can't say well we can impeach for whatever we want and put on whatever evidence we want. Um uh but it's like a it's like a grand jury in that uh, uh you know we want it secret or or quasi secret and limited participation uh of uh the president's folks. Uh, limited but, but, uh, ability to cross-examine in the in the house. Um, I mean, it's e- it's either one or the but other. Of course, right? if they, if they and, and well, if they want it both ways, the Democrats the Democrats want it. I mean, the Democrats aren't really playing by that, or the Republicans aren't really playing by that either. Because if anyone looked at it as a grand jury, you're absolutely right. I mean, the the lack of secrecy, the leaking, like a like not even like a sieve, but like basically like a bucket with no bottom, yeah. essentially, has has been, you know, that's a that's a huge problem. And I've said that before. And I think that absolutely because without getting access to those cross-examination and those questioning, we only get a, a part of the picture. And that's a big problem. But on the other hand, if we're going to treat this like an indict, like a like in a grand jury indictment, and on that end, and say, hey, the Democrats aren't holding up that well, also as you point out, that generally speaking, it the bar is not that high to get that indictment. So I think any reasonable person right. under a grand jury type process, if that analogy is apt, which I'm going to say it's not is that a bunch of Republicans would say, well, yeah, there's enough here for a trial. But of course, no Republicans are saying that. So both sides, well, neither side is really treating this like, oh, this is an indictment. And that's why I think we should just throw away this analogy because it's just no good. Well, I, I agree. No, absolutely. I'm 100% with you on that. Yeah. 
So, so there's is, basically a, a house a trial. generous kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. A house trial and a Senate trial. Yeah. And, and yeah, exactly. So uh, that, that, let's could we agree on that? So, you know, what did you, I guess, do you think there would be anything that would have satisfied the Republicans that could have gotten even a couple of Republicans to vote for this process? I mean, what, what would it have taken? Would it have been enough? Because my sense is even if, because a lot, I've heard a lot of Republicans say, well, the problem is, of course, is yeah, there are all these protections, but hey, if he's not giving information, you know, the executive branch, then they can deny the president the right to cross, the president's attorneys the right to cross exam. But I think even if they put that in and given them every single protection that a person would get in a trial, there still would have, there still wouldn't have been a single Republican vote for it. That's my sense. What do you think? I think I think you would have I think you would have gotten some. Um, I guess the my thought would be one. The, the big problem is uh, not being able to call witnesses, subpoena witnesses, uh, essentially for the defense. Um, that's well, that's can. problematic. I mean, uh, you can. The other, if if they let you. Well, sure, but that's that's right. Hey, I mean, it's, elections it's sort of... <laughs> have consequences, Jay. Where, where have I heard that before? You know, when you're in the majority, you get to set those rules, and if a majority of the body that's deciding on those rules disagrees with something. I mean, wouldn't it be a bizarre process to, to, to not have it that way, given, given the political nature of this? So, I mean, yeah, if the Republicans well, no, would, I mean, say, would say, well, we want to be able to dictate the terms, even though we're in the minority, now that would be truly strange. Well, dictate terms. And I mean, I think if, again, if what we're going for, if what the process needs, if we can agree that what the process needs is a, a basic sense of fundamental fairness, right? So that, that whatever the result is, people can say, okay, that was, that was uh, arrived at uh, fairly and everyone had a, a, a shot because we're talking about, you know, essentially overturning an election. Um, allowing the defense to call witnesses isn't, isn't that much of a stretch, right? I mean, it's, it's not as, uh, you don't go to a court and, uh, you know, you have a right to, uh, uh, call your witnesses if if the other side feels like it. Um, uh, so I mean, yeah, he'll I mean have that's the, the thing. I mean, he'll have court. the ability to do that in the Senate. So yeah, so yeah, it's not will. like whatever the result is, this won't be fair. This will be this will be the the president will be given every opportunity. In fact, Mitch McConnell, I'm sure, will bend over backwards to find all sorts of opportunities for President Trump. Mr. So, Mr. Chair, Mr. Chairman, I'd like, I'd like to call Joe Biden to the stand. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, like you know, Joe Biden. Yeah. So, so I don't we think we have that. I don't think we'll have well, that opportunity. Well, I, I Mr. just don't. Mr. Biden, you, you have, you have publicly expressed that you withheld aid to the Ukraine uh, unless they would fire a prosecutor. Is that correct, Mr. Biden? There you go. That's my question. Yeah. I have one question for you. But, I mean, do you think that, no, so of course they won't let that happen, but... Well, in the Senate, there's uh, no reason it couldn't happen. Wait a second. There's no reason it couldn't happen in the Senate. Are you telling me that when it gets to a Senate trial... Maybe they do that in the Senate. Yeah, maybe they do. I mean, unless... maybe they do that in the Senate trial. Although, although I think the the Senate... the Senate uh, procedure, and I mean, it, may, it all depends on where the ball lies by the time we get there, right? Sure. Uh, may well be to do what um, uh, Representative, um, or, or sorry, Senator Byrd uh, did at the beginning of the Clinton uh, uh, 
uh, trial was was moved to dismiss. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, basically, say there's nothing. Uh, there is no impeachable offense here. Because uh, I think that's I really think that's sort of the first line of of defense, regardless. Um, but no, th- those are I would say the, the the big concerns would be that uh, the the participation is still sort of at the at the whim of the committee chair. It's not, and it's not. This isn't a situation like uh, in a in a trial where the the decision to admit witness testimony or not uh, is at is goes to the judge. This would be similar to the decision to allow a defense witness to appear is sure. up to the prosecution. So sure. I, that's, that's the, like a, the issue. Yeah. yeah. And, and of course and in I, the Senate, it would be up to the judge who would be, uh, would be the, uh, 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 sorry, chief justice Roberts, but yeah. So, you know, yeah. I think it's important to point out here that this is, this was only a vote to have an inquiry, not a vote to impeach. And, and the fact that every Republican opposed even an inquiry, a formal inquiry and Pelosi and the democratic leadership had a twist arms to ensure that only there were only a couple of Democratic defections. I mean, that that pretty much tells you, uh, you know, kind of what you need to know in a sense. Though, to me, it seems like the strategy or the hope from the Democratic side is that as the public sees more evidence, they're going to turn more strongly to support impeachment, which will, you know, keep enough House Democrats in districts that Trump won kind of in line so that they'll at least have a majority to impeach and then send it over to to the Senate for a trial. And then, you know, your kind of dream scenario, if you're a Democrat, not a delusional scenario, but a dream scenario is there's there's enough there and maybe Bolton uh, ends up testifying, you know, kind of in support of Lieutenant Colonel Vindman's testimony about those ellipses in the conversation and some other stuff. And maybe just maybe you get to a majority to convict, but not obviously you're not going to get to, you know, the numbers you need. And two thirds. Yeah. And I think that's yeah. about as much of a victory as Democrats can can hope for here. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely uh, agreed with that. Uh, um, the the interesting thing, the other part I wanted to comment on this, and and I I think we've probably been in agreement on this too, because we're both process oriented sure. kind of people. Um, one at the beginning of the year, uh, you and I were both in agreement that Nancy Pelosi did not want impeachment. Yeah, that she was she was pushing back on her party, not you know not to not to uh, get us into that thicket. Um, uh, secondly, then there was the sort of the quasi impeachment of, okay, well, we're, we're opening an inquiry, but we're not really going to vote on it. And the uh, sense was, uh, that was a vote to protect, uh, Democrats in, in, uh, Trump leaning districts. Right. Um, now I guess this is what, what troubled me a little bit is the, the new narrative that the, uh, uh, the media sort of picked up is that it's, well, now we're in the public phase of the, uh, uh, the impeachment, as if this was always, if this this was always the plan, and this is the way these things always evolve, is is uh, uh, well, of course we were we were just going to do the secret part for a while, and now we're going to do the public part, um, which in and of itself sort of again raises some due process questions. Again, due process in the broader sense uh, of okay, well, some of the evidence comes in, in in secret proceedings, but now we'll let let other stuff happen publicly. Um, I mean, don't isn't isn't your sense that that Pelosi uh, uh, caved on this? Well, my sense is that I mean, by having by having sure. to go with a, a final by having to put it to a vote as opposed to what we agreed she probably didn't want to do. 
My sense is that the numbers changed enough for her to, and, and the pressure, yeah, between the numbers changing a bit and the, the pressure from her left, I think she felt that it was, you know, that she was essentially inevitable that it would have to happen. And also, you know, I, I think that when we're talking about this, we so, we so often just talk about it in terms of strategy. But, it, and again, I hesitate to make any conclusions about this because we're only hearing one side of it. But there sure does seem to me to be a lot of damning evidence, certainly enough for, certainly enough for it to be sent over to the Senate for a trial. I mean, if I if, if we were putting aside all the politics and we took the party labels and the names off and just presented this evidence of what we know, and again, partial picture because we haven't heard the cross-examination, it seems hard for sure. me to believe that a majority of people in the, uh, in the country and in the House wouldn't vote pretty easily to send it over to the Senate for a trial based on sure, but what, what, what would be the What would be the high crime or misdemeanor? You don't think using the uh, using the foreign uh, corrupting the foreign policy apparatus to uh, uh, hurt your political rival isn't uh, a high crime or misdemeanor? Well, what do you have to do, Jay? Do you have to kill somebody? I mean, you know. Well, I guess there's there's the I guess the presumption in your question that there, it's somehow corrupt. You don't think that's uh, corrupt? There's also, okay, uh, well, wait, wait, let's start. Let's start from there then. I want to make sure I understand this, and maybe maybe I'm getting you wrong. Are you saying that, for instance, sending your personal attorney and your political staff to conduct foreign policy and withhold congressionally approved military aid to another country in an attempt to hurt a potential political opponent in an upcoming presidential campaign, that that's okay? There's an awful lot of assumptions that you've got. No, wait, going no, on no, no. Let's and, not talk about the assumptions. That, wait, stop. All right, just, well, let's, let's just let's, tell me. Tell me this. Okay, tell let, me let, this. Is that as I described it? Let's just assume. Let's not even any president. If, if, any if that pres- if that were the case, yes, I would say that is that is corrupt. That okay. is inappropriate. Okay, and that that's that's um, all I'm saying. Now, can I can I point to any? Now, can I can I point to any uh, statute uh, uh, that that prohibits it? No, I can't. But that's again. You said that's not. I mean, not, it's certainly shady. But that's it's not shady politics. But that's the, if you read. I mean, the Constitution doesn't say if the president breaks this or that part of U.S. code. And if you said a bunch of times yeah. before, this is about this is a political. This isn't about breaking a law specifically. You know, you've said that before on numerous occasions. So that's no, not. I don't know. I don't know if I've said. I don't know if I've said that. But I think there needs there needs to be a, a legal predicate for it, right? I mean, if you look at the. The constitutional debates, and there's been a lot of good stuff that's been written about this, that there, you know, initial drafts, there was the argument that that said um, you could essentially have a a recall of the president, right, by mm-hmm. impeachment. And the president could be impeached for whatever, for bad policy decisions, uh, for stuff that you don't just don't like. Um, and it's in one of the, the Federalists where, where Hamilton argues, no, uh, what we're talking about here is it's impeachment for high crimes and misdemeanors. Meaning there has to be uh, something that is 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 uh, beyond simply maladministration. Sure, absolutely, if you will. But it's and, not and, like it's not you know, like we the can term... differ where you draw the line. And again, the, the finding finding precedent for that is difficult because there's three examples in all of history, um, and high crimes and misdemeanors is not well defined. But we do know it's more more than uh, more than. Uh, conduct we disapprove of, right? It's got to sure. be more than just absolutely. 
But uh, you, and, yeah, so you're not saying uh, I want to make sure you're not saying that. Well, if the if the president does something that's corrupt, but we just happen not to have a specific law against it, he gets a pass. That's a loophole. Or are you saying that? I don't know. Maybe you are. Oh, I think I think I I think I may be saying there there's, there needs to be yeah some sort of again if if it's corrupt it, here's the thing where you I guess kind of it. If there's if there's no law against it, is is it corrupt? I guess that's the question. <laughs> of course, right? there are plenty of corrupt things. There's no law against. I mean, that's an easy question to answer. Absolutely, a president like can what? be anyone can be horribly corrupt, and just because there's not a law against it doesn't mean it's not corrupt. Doesn't mean he's not corrupting the office and 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 the institution. Of course, I mean, I think you're looking at this as an like attorney, what? and that's where you fall into your big problem because you can't. I mean, you can't see it outside of that lens. Maybe I don't know. Well, I am. That's, I mean, that is how I'm looking at it. Well, yeah, there's so, your problem. Um, all right. Well, my, my guess is my guess is Chief Justice Roberts would, would look at it the same way that I am. No, he's but, not going to, because um, I don't think anyone seriously thinks that you have to be have uh, that you have to have broken a law because that's not what the that's not what the impeachment uh, and clause in the Constitution says. I mean, it doesn't say doesn't reference that you have to have broken a law. And that's, you know, the articles of impeachment. What what that is, is determined uh, by the House. A high crime. Yeah. Or misdemeanor. A What's crime. a misdemeanor? Well, well you know, is that like jaywalking? I mean, come on. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you're, you know, I think you're uh, you're just entirely almost willfully wrong on this. But but uh, you know, well, you know, and, and hey, that that's okay. I understand. You know, maybe you're drinking the the GOP Kool Aid on this one, but uh, I, in terms of the timeline, it seems to me that you know it looks like we're going to get a vote on impeachment by the end of the year, pushing a Senate trial into January. Clinton's took about five weeks. I don't think this is going to take anywhere as long. But and of course, a lot of people talked about this timetable, but it seems to me there's one argument saying that you know. There, the Trump administration is fighting a lot of requests for information and potentially damning information we don't know. But if Democrats took longer and you know kept on with those fights, they could potentially build a stronger case. But even in the most optimistic scenario, then that pushes things into the summer, at which point it not only interferes with campaigns, but it gives any kind of potentially wavering Republicans the sort of argument of, well, We've got an election coming up in a few months, so let's let the people decide. Yeah. And so, again, I'm right. torn a little bit here because I think there's, I think, you know, a, a lot of folks to the left of me have said, I don't care what the political consequences are. If this guy is dirty, we need to, we need to investigate this thoroughly as, as a matter of, of ethics and, you know, and, and so, and I, I I have a lot of uh, sympathy for that argument, but of course, that doesn't work as well politically, uh, and obviously, could end up harming harming Democrats. And it's not something that certainly uh, the congressional Democrats are going to do. Could 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 uh, theoretical Democrats simultaneously vote for Joe Biden while while urging impeachment of President Clinton? I I think that's a good that's why why not going to be the, Joe Biden's uh, the not corrupt more at all. Question is, you get into no it. no Joe Joe Biden's not corrupt at all. I mean, there's, <laughs> there, well, no, there's a there's I mean that's a whole that's a whole well, different okay, issue. Well, again, Joe Joe Biden said I'm going to withhold aid to to the Ukraine, um, unless this prosecutor is fired. Well, 
Now, you need to put that remark um, in context, I think, because Joe Biden okay. wasn't the only one okay. saying that. The IMF was pushing for that. The World Bank was pushing for that. There was an international effort pushing for that. And also, that prosecutor was the known. The entire swamp was pushing let, for it. No, that prosecutor was known to be corrupt for not investigating those sort of companies. And so you can twist this around and make it into a, you know, argument by innuendo, taking away all the context and saying Joe Biden did this corrupt thing and it's no different from what Donald Trump is doing. But that's just flat out false. That's fake news in the worst form. No, 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 no. Here's here's the no. But here, but, but think through it. I mean, if we're talking about the actual conduct, right? A quid pro quo of of withholding aid for some domestic um, trade off. Absolutely, no. Now, that's that's the same the on that level. Biden, yeah. Is, is there any? Is there any? Is there any? Is there any, is there any uh, political advantage? Yeah. Uh, perhaps not. Uh, maybe that's maybe that's the issue. Would say, well, uh, Biden got no real advantage out of a potential out of that, disadvantage. And we can assume that he did that in the in the uh, public uh, public interest. Yeah, I know. No, um, okay, I see what but, you're saying. And but yeah, there's still yeah. Hunter there. Uh, on the uh, in terms of the the surface level, absolutely, you're right. That's a that's a very similar thing. And so I don't have a problem with that. We're, in just, fact, we're just describing good motives to Biden and bad motives to Trump. Well, yeah, absolutely, because that's where that's what the evidence seems to suggest that Biden was in if in anything he was acting against interest and Trump clearly asking you know acting in his own political interest. So yeah, absolutely, it's not it's not just describing yet, yet the motives out of thin air. Was, it's I mean it's it's looking at what evidence. Right, but the prosecutor who was fired was was looking into Burisma. Uh, is the is the sense that but he wasn't that uh, uh, but he wasn't. Well, then we eventually no. So you're sort of saying he was fired for not not uh, looking into Burisma enough. I mean, he was, he was fired for not looking into a lot of this I, corruption. I, I mean, I understand that this is not a story that has been right. reported a lot on the right, but it just happens to be the truth, which is inconvenient. Right. I get we'll, it when you're we'll trying to make this, Joe Biden into we'll this corrupt we'll monster, see, no, but we'll, that's equivalent with Trump because that's we'll see the only. This all plays out, and I guess. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Anyway, um, we'll see as it all plays out. Sure. My, my 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 question here. This is sort of the rhetorical question: Is uh, why would Burisma pay uh, Hunter Biden six hundred grand uh, a year um, uh, just to show up at some meetings? Um, oh, absolutely. The rhetorical answer is because the Clintons would have charged twice as much. Well, no, I, wait, but, wait, I, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, on that point, you and I agree. I mean, there's no question that Hunter Biden was employed because he's Joe Biden. He was Joe Biden's kid. Now, that is that that's the sort of thing that happens all the time in politics. Just ask any of Trump's kids, for instance, or I mean, you know, so I mean, yeah. And that's that is absolutely shady. It's not illegal. That's an example of something that, you know, is often called soft corruption. And I think that Joe Biden is. Let me finish. I think that Joe Biden is wrong to have not, you know, admitted that because he's kind of waffled around it. But, you know, in the end, it's it's not going to it's not going to matter because Joe Biden's not going to be the nominee. But anyway. All right. All right. Um, All right. Moving on here. Uh, Some good news this week, not just for the Trump administration, but, you know, for the fight against radical Islamic terrorism, just more generally. And that, of course, was the death of Islamic State leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi in a raid by U.S. Special Forces. And Baghdadi was, of course, the leader uh, who spearheaded the rise of the Islamic State. And his death is unquestionably a setback to the group, which in recent years has seen its influence and also its territorial control uh, on the decline. Now, that said, 
the Islamic State is still a, a strong force in the region, and there are you know more than a few voices in the intelligence community that worry that our recent U.S. pullout from Syria might allow the Islamic State to regroup and grow. And especially given that this pullout weakens our ties with Kurdish forces who've been our allies. And of course, it was information from an Islamic State defector who became a Kurdish informant that led to the raid that resulted in Baghdadi's death. So, Jay, what's your take on all of this? Oh, I'm, I'm certainly glad he's yeah. dead. Uh, <laughs> okay. I, I think that is... Um, and and the, I, the, the, the bigger point was the... I have to say the Trump press conference discussing this was one of the most entertaining things I've seen in, in quite a while. <laughs> right. uh, it, it was a terrific press conference, the best press conference ever. <laughs> um, I, I mean, it was if you if you if you didn't see it, and it goes on forever, and that's part of the, the humor is this the um uh, this this wonderful try. But but it was he's like <laughs> our very own Fidel Castro, you know. He just can't shut himself up. But anyway, well, no. He, you know, you know who it reminds me of. I'm I'm in the process, and we're having to look at what are we reading. But um, I've been reading um George Plimpton's Shadowbox. Oh wow, uh, which is about uh his his you know training to to fight, and then also just generally following uh, boxing and Muhammad Ali in particular. And and in some ways, Donald Trump is sort of our our presidential Muhammad Ali, right? <laughs> um, the, the, the boasting, the, the sure. showboating that, I mean, it really, no, it, I, it, it, it really, it really strikes you when you read about, you know, the way Ali acted and stuff he said and the stuff at his, his press conferences. And then you look at Trump. Um, yeah, he died like a dog. He died like a coward. I mean, it was just sort of like, yeah. um, um, you know, he didn't, you know, Trump didn't rhyme anything, but, uh, oh, yeah. you know, maybe next time. Yeah. Um, so, th so all that said, I think, no, I think that's fantastic. Uh, 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 terrific uh, best news ever um uh and and i mean there's there's an argument there that look if we can do this um by this sort of pinpoint surgical special forces come in and, and kill the bad guy strike as opposed to um uh lots of troops on the ground maybe that's the better way to go um that remains to be seen and i, I mean i think the other piece of this is the the troops that we had uh, in Syria, who are now just a little bit farther back in Iraq, I mean, there's only a thousand of them. Um, so I, I mean, I'm there's there's not I, I I I don't know that there's necessarily a I don't know a, a correlation between the two. I mean, I've, I've gone on record as far as saying, look, we ought to support the Kurds who supported us. Um, uh, but uh, that ship has sailed now. Well, so. You know, uh, the other piece, though, this is the Oh, I was going to say I found funny, and this is um, was the Washington Post's uh, eulogy for um, uh, El Baghdadi, uh, which they they changed the headline originally, but the body of the, the piece still still reads uh, describes him as sort of a bespectacled scholar um, who was uh, uh, you know in Islamic studies, uh, who until the U.S. invasion of Iraq uh, was was really just looking to be a, a professor, much like yourself, Mike. Um, and teach kids. He he attended the Saddam University for Islamic uh, studies, um, which is which is a serious party school. So, but but it, the, the Washington Post. I mean, it was it was there was a uh, internet blowback. Why um, why is that? Uh, you know, sort of defining the. Well, you know, I mean, I don't get the. Well, no, I, I'm I'm saying I, I'm just wondering. Do we is is it is well, it not well, okay if we don't acknowledge the 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 humanity of people who 
who die or, or do we need to portray them as completely evil supervillains or what's the deal there? I, I don't get the blowback. Completely okay. evil supervillains. Yeah. No, in, in this case, yeah. In this case, guys, for, for people who um, uh, do, do mass beheadings on the internet, uh, for people who light uh, uh, captured pilots on fire, um, for people who who kill thousands of of uh, women and children, um, yes, I think I think we're safe to to say this guy's pure evil, and I don't think you, <laughs> sort of <clears throat> the like trying to find the bright side, the human side uh, uh, of this. I I don't know that, 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 that just that just that's uh, something that you, especially if it's not something you that, do in the death just, notice. That right? just strikes me as a that's a. Uh, very anti-American in the sense that it's uh, almost completely anti-Christian. Um, uh, so I, I don't know. I don't think, he, I mean, yeah, he did horrific stuff and it, the world is a better place because he is dead. But to me, the idea that we would accompany that action with that sort of hatred, which I think spawns that sort of circle of, of awfulness, I think that's entirely the wrong response. Well, I mean, you could have, here's, here's the thing. It's, let me, let me see if I can find the actual headline. Uh, but it, it, you could have gone with something like uh, terrorist leader uh, killed. Sure, that sounds good to me. As opposed to... Swell guy said. dies? I mean, I'm sure it wasn't that. But, well, well wait, why are you looking for it? Just, it I'm, seems I'm, to me I, to be I, kind I, of a... I apologize. I don't know if this pulled up. We can keep talking yeah. about other stuff. I will come, I will to come me, back to this. To me, but. I mean, obviously, again, good news. No. That, but it also, to me, illustrates the importance of having deep alliances, human intelligence, and building relationships over time. And, you know, that's something that it's still at this point, not all the technology in the world can't replicate. So if you don't have a real presence on the ground and work with people who live there and breathe that, you know, then then you're not going to have access to the sort of intelligence that allows you to do these things. And my concern is that as we withdraw from a lot of these areas, it's people like the Russians who are filling that void, at least in part. And so that's why it, I'm glad that the president in his own way, while never admitting, of course, that he was changing his mind or wrong, saying that, well, we're going to keep troops to protect the oil fields in Syria, which are currently held by Kurdish forces, which is, I think, sort of a back end sort of way of saying, well, we're going to keep up those relationships with the Kurds in a different way because we understand how valuable those relationships actually are. And to me, that that's a that's a good thing and a smart move. Yeah, no, I absolutely yeah. agreed. Yeah. All right. Uh, you know, uh, before we move on, I just wanted to thank uh, some of our new supporters for this week. Uh, Tina, who's a new Patreon sustaining supporter, and Joe B. from Wisconsin, who uh, is also a new sustaining Patreon supporter. And he wrote, as a poli-sci student, I love the very in-depth perspectives and analysis. So thank you guys both. Yeah, very oh, much. We you. appreciate it. And of course, um, I think I just sent out a mug to Joe and, you know, when you become a monthly sustaining supporter through Patreon, you can get things like mugs and bonus shows and all kinds of cool stuff. And uh, if you're interested in that, just go to patreon.com slash politics guys, or you can just go to politicsguyscom slash support. We really do appreciate all of your help in that. So, uh, Jay, I thought we could maybe talk about some contradictory economic news this week uh we you know kind of moving into policy sure so on the plus side the economy added 100 go ahead well, hold on hold on can i be before Mike, yeah. before we get into that can i just throw out the the original washington yeah, post okay, headline no, i apologize it's it just yeah. took me too long no, to ahead. spell baghdadi 
the the the, uh, the original Sunday morning headline, the Washington Post website was Abu Bakir al Baghdadi, austere religious scholar at helm of Islamic State, dies at forty eight. Yeah, okay. And and to me that that seems to that seems to no, sort of yeah, bury no, the lead. No, I think I think you're think? right because given I mean just given basic as I understand them news principles, uh, he's much more known not for being an austere religious scholar but for being a terrorist leader. So actually, okay, exactly, sure, a terrorist on that, leader. No, exactly. on that, Jay, you and I absolutely agree that that's a bad yes. headline, no question. All right, well, All good. Right. Yeah. Well, anyway, so yes. we added 128,000 jobs in October, and that actually outpaced the estimates of analysts. Wage gains up 3% from a year ago, which is higher than the inflation rate of under 2%. Employment's now been going up for the last 109 months, which is the longest stretch of consistent job creation since we started keeping good records back in 1939. So that's all pretty darn good. Now, on the less positive side, economic growth slipped to 1.9% in the third quarter, that's July through September, and that's declined from 2% in the second quarter, which in turn was a decline from 3% in the first quarter of this year. And consumer spending is still strong, but business has become a lot more cautious, and that's something most analysts say is due to ongoing uncertainty about the trade war with China. Now, the administration says progress is being made in talks, and it was initially hoped that a phase one trade deal would be announced at the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum in, in Santiago, Chile, that was scheduled for the middle of November. But the deal hasn't come together, and Chile recently said they wouldn't be hosting that forum. And so in response to this, the Federal Reserve announced another interest rate cut. That's the third one this year, if you're keeping track. And that moves the rate from the range to the range of 1.5 to 1.75%. And along with that cut, though, Chair Jerome Powell said that made it fairly clear that the Fed was likely done with cuts for the foreseeable future. That led, of course, to the inevitable critical tweet from the man who personally appointed him, President Trump, uh, who I don't know what he wants interest rates to be, but I know the the one word answer is always lower. So uh, what do you think about this sort of, again, kind of weird mix of economic news, Jay? I, I mean, generally, I think it's it's by and uh, by and far positive news, right? Um, there are there are things that that uh, can be controlled policy wise, and there are more things that can't be controlled policy wise. And I think it was Milton Friedman who who said that you know no one's ever found a way to repeal right. the business cycle. Um, so if that's that's part of that's true. Um, uh, that said. Uh, the U.S. Is, is is doing great in terms of bringing back workers, and out of the the number that I was most impressed by is the uh, folks that they also consider that this was uh, uh, automotive uh, jobs were down because right, of the GM 000, strike. I think, yeah, um, yeah. So forty two thousand that you're knocked out that typically would have been in there, um, and but the labor uh, uh, participation rate. Uh, which is uh, has is climbed significantly, and to me that's that's a big deal because so many economists have said one of the things that, that was holding our economy back growth wise, not only trade, uh, but is also the inability to find yeah. workers. So the fact that we're getting more uh, people back into the workforce, uh, and again these are workers typically between twenty five and fifty four, um, that's at a ten year high. Right. 
So that's that's good news. And it affects the sort of the wages a little bit. Wages might be higher otherwise because you've got sort of baby boomers who are retiring, but you've got now more participation except, from younger yeah, workers it, who are going to be typically right. paid less. Than but except that, you know. of course, on the labor force participation rate stats, as you mentioned, since it's typically 25 to 54, that doesn't include the baby boomer retirement sort of thing, which is what makes it a good metric because it's only people kind of in those prime yeah. earning uh, or employment years, basically. So, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, but of course, yeah. All, as you pointed out, as you mentioned, or as Friedman pointed out, right, the business cycle is still a thing. And, you know, this has been a historically long, if not super strong uh, expansion. Everyone, we know it's going to end because we haven't defeated the business cycle by some magic. And, of course, President yeah. Trump obviously doesn't want it ending before November of 2020. Um, you know, the thing to me, Jay, is it seems like. But I think, I think the odds of it ending before 2020 have now declined. From where uh, where they were maybe, yeah, maybe you know, six months ago, where people thinking there was there could have been a recession on the horizon, it seems more unlikely yeah. now. And again, the only the, the biggest piece that that is, seems to be holding back is sort of the self inflicted yeah. uh, trade. Yeah, that's trade that's part. what I was going to say. Is, you know, it seems to me that kind of pushing for lower interest rates while doing a trade war, it's kind of like like you're driving with your foot on the the, the brake and the gas pedal at the same time. I mean, it's just not a very good strategy if your if your main goal is economic growth but of course the president has i mean a, a number well, i don't know if he has a number of goals but i we talked about the the you know the strategy with china and i get what he's trying to do there i think but it's it's necessarily kind of that drag on, on economic growth and i'm sure or I'm, i feel fairly confident that if President Trump hadn't taken this attitude toward China and done the stuff with the tariffs, and of course there's another uh, another round of tariffs uh, uh, that are supposed to be kicking in in December, I believe it is, in like 160 billion or something like that, that you know we would have yeah. we probably would have economic growth of uh, maybe not maybe not three percent, but probably pretty close to it. So you know that that's in that sense. And, you know, this is I hate to but I don't hate to give Donald Trump credit, but in that sense, he's kind of doing something uh, No, because I don't <laughs> in that sense. He's actually doing something that seems to be against his short term political interest. Right. Because I think he has to have a bunch of people telling him that economic growth would be better if he stopped with China and also the. The benefits sure. of any kind of a long-term deal with China on the sort of grounds that we're looking for with intellectual property and all that, we're not going to see those benefits right away. We probably won't see the bulk of those benefits until, you know, after Donald Trump doesn't have to worry about being reelected. Yeah, 20 so years down the road. This, yeah. isn't, this is an argument yeah. that, you know, you have to say, well, it, it almost seems like Donald Trump is actually trying to do something that he believes to be in the best long-term interest of the U.S. economy that works against his own short-term political interest. And, and I think, you know, we should, we should acknowledge that whether or not we think it's a good strategy or not, that seems to me to be, to be the conclusion, at least that, that I come to here. Yeah, very stable genius. Yeah, 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 exactly. For me. Um, a broken clock, right? So, no, and I, the only other yeah, the the only other thing I think that's that's interesting, and, and I I think there may be some of this. The reason so much pressure on the Fed uh, is because that will allow Trump sort of the the leeway uh, to push on trade, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, if you've got a, a Fed that is is continually injecting money, that that sort of offsets some of the the uh, growth losses from trade. 
And my hope is that, I mean, I don't know, maybe Trump is, is one of these guys who just always wants to see rates lower and would like to see, uh, you know, the sort of the European uh, new monetary policy type, uh, you know, God, lower than zero uh, negative interest rates. As, um, yeah. I mean, as you know, I'm, I'm nothing if not a traditionalist. Uh, so I, I tend to, uh, you know, hew to the more traditional monetary policy that uh, too low rates for too long gets you inflation. Um, but, uh, you know, in this case, where it's sort of counterbalanced by the other drop in growth, um, it, it, it hasn't yeah. happened yet. But uh, uh, but I think I think Powell is probably going to be firm in that. Look, he's he's made at this point sort of three concessions uh, from back last year when he said, I don't you know, we don't predict any more cuts for the for a while. And then they did uh, three in a row, albeit small. Cuts. I, you know, and I think there were more um, concessions to reality than I, I, concessions to Trump, because I don't think anyone really expected this kind of trade uncertainty to drag on for for this long. You know, so. Yeah. No, I think, you know, I think that's yeah. that's probably right. Yeah. All right, you know, let's talk a little bit about uh, the Democratic primary race. We have we haven't done that yet, and of course, there's a bunch of news late this week. There, first off, uh, the fields narrowed. Uh, Beto O'Rourke dropped out, saying that it would, in the best interest of the people working on his campaign, the Democratic Party, and in the best interest of the country, to unify around the nominee. Then there's uh, Kamala Harris, who she's kind of looks. That's pretty. I just want to say that's a pretty funny. I'm sorry. That's just a pretty funny. Like you lead off with, it's in the best interest of the people working on well, you my know, campaign. I mean, that was his statement, and you know, I think <laughs> for me no, to I get out that, of this, that, that's kind yeah. of a a nice thing that a nice way to look at it in the sense that you have these people, and you've worked on campaigns, you know the deal. People devote there, and oh yeah, and if you're holding them on there when you don't really have any real shot, I mean, I think it is a good thing to just face reality early on and let those people go and do things with their lives. Oh, it, it's it's yeah. entirely honest. So good, yeah, good, for, good yeah. for Beto. I just I just think it's sort of it's it's refreshing. It's funny because it's so it's so unusual. I guess, but <laughs> it's in the best interest of our employees. Yeah, exactly. That we just yeah, close. no, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> so really... good, good for good for Beto. But then, you know, like I said, Harris. You know, it was back in July that which wasn't all that long ago that she looked like she was going to enter into that top tier of candidates right and now she's uh slashed her campaign spending she's let go of almost all of her new hampshire staff and she's basically focusing everything on iowa where she's currently in sixth place at a not very impressive three percent so i don't know how much longer she has and then of course finally elizabeth warren She's neck 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 with Joe Biden in the national polls, and she leads him handily in Iowa. I think Biden's like fourth in Iowa. Uh, she finally re- released the financial details of her Medicare for All program, and of course, she's one of the two Democratic candidates who still is kind of holding on to that. Both uh, you know she and uh, Bernie Sanders, and uh, uh, the cost uh, estimated at twenty point five trillion dollars over a decade. The per- projected healthcare spending savings of seven trillion over that same period, and also how she planned to pay for it, largely through taxes on the wealthy, corporations and financial transactions, and also better enforcement of tax laws, which she says will bring in over two point three trillion over a decade. And that's something that's at least one part of that that I'm a big fan of because I've been pushing for that for uh for a long time there. So anyway, any one of these things, Jay, what 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 do you think? Uh, about you know, you take your pick. I guess I'm saying. Oh, I, I would say I would say this is this is shows sort of the the ephemeral nature of of primary contests. Uh, 
And this is something that, that you and I, I think studiously avoid in, in that the jumping on bandwagons and those is the front runner and though this is the, um, because it so rarely happens. Um, and, and I can think back to the, how many different, uh, you know, uh, primary boomlets of, of how sure. many different yeah. candidates where, uh, people, whether in the media or, or even in the party were sort of anointing that, oh, this is, this is the savior. I mean, um, uh, you know, there were there was like Howard Dean week uh, for a while back in 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 two thousand four, and then there was also uh, who was it the general? Um, it escapes me now. Um, but then you know, Beto O'Rourke was was sort of the senator or the the savior because uh, he's got big teeth, kind of like a Kennedy, and you know, he's a rich kid and and that sort of thing. And well, we uh, he can sort of he can speak Spanish and um, he has a Spanish nickname. Um, but but again, it all just sort of uh, fell apart pretty quickly. And on the Republican side, I'd say there was, you know, if you remember, there was like Herman yeah. Cain week uh, for a while back in like uh, uh, 2000 or, or so. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think that's just just sort of a, a cautionary tale that um, whenever the, the media says, aha, look, well, this this is the new bright star on the horizon. This is the, the game changer. This is to, to sort of view it with with skepticism, because uh things change quickly in uh in in primaries and those the, the ones who are like the outsiders who you'd never heard of uh tend not to yeah, to get very absolutely. far you know well the one thing i wanted to comment on was was warren's uh medicare for all plan and first off obviously it's not going to happen uh but i also think that it's not a bad idea just because it's not going to happen to have the have people at least prominent people mentioning the idea that tends to be how policy change happens you go from people saying well this is inconceivable to a point where it happens now it might take it might take decades you know but or even longer but i think it's good to have those ideas out there that being said and i'm i'm pretty sure you'll agree with this jay that whether it's a big new social program or a big new tax cut the costs are almost always underestimated and the benefits are overestimated because, of course, they take the best case scenario outcome. So I think it's safe to say that yeah. uh, Warren's Medicare for all plan would cost more than twenty point five point five trillion, would save less than seven trillion. And uh, that's just based on every single poli big policy I can even ever think of actually fits that. So would right. you agree with that? Yeah, and, but you know, I said again. You know, I'll point this out, and this is a this is a liberal talking point because it's because it's true and it's important. Is that the United States is the only rich country in the world that hasn't been able to figure out universal access to health care? And uh, you, know, you might think that Warren's way isn't the way to go about it, and I tend to agree. But I think it's important to have that conversation. And so, even though. I'm concerned, like a lot of moderate Democrats are, that if she ends up being the nominee, that this could have uh, implications not just for the presidential race, but for down ballot races. Um, I, I, I'm kind of glad that at least there are important people who are still, you know, talking about this because it's an important issue. Well, and, and Mike, as a as a conservative, and you know, just my my predilections, I I would always rather see a uh, fight on the issues, sure. right? Um, I would I would much rather see this. Uh, an honest uh, uh, sort of slugfest on um, here's you know here's what I want. It's going to be one big state controlled uh, monopoly on healthcare, and it's going to cost a whole bunch. Um, and yeah. and let's let's have that fight right? as opposed to as opposed to sort of a, a sneakier sort of 
um, well, this will, you know, guarantee coverage for all and everybody will get everything they want and nobody will have to pay more taxes yeah. and, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Now, I think I think there's certainly room for criticism in the Warren plan that, that I think she doesn't acknowledge that uh, she's not going to be able to get that, that 25, 30 trillion, whatever it is, uh, just by taxing the rich and corporations, just because there's not that, right. there's no, not mean, enough I, of them. I give her... Um, out there and, and eventually you'll have to look to the middle class and uh, the, you know, she hasn't acknowledged that yet. Well, but at I mean, some she, point, I think she, she'll have her to. basic argument is that by releasing this plan, she, she believes she demonstrates that she won't have to look to the middle class for that. Cause of course she's been asked this question a lot and has dodged it. And I give her credit for coming up yeah. with a plan that, you know, lays out her reasoning behind it. Now I think like a lot of the other Democratic candidates, in fact, not that I'm a Democratic candidate, but you know, I'm still like the Democratic candidates. Uh, well, you know, you know, but, but you that, that it's that it's flawed reasoning and that it relies on far too optimistic uh, assumptions on both ends. But I give her credit for you know saying, yeah. okay, you want an answer to this? Here's my answer to this. It's uh, it's big and long and super detailed. And uh, go to Medium and read it. You know, so good good for Warren for doing that. Though I don't yeah. again agree with it. So. Okay, um, you know, before we uh, before we go, I wanted to mention, you know, I was back at I was at that sound education sound education podcasting conference in Boston back in October, not that long ago, and when I was there, I learned about a lot of great politics podcasts, and hopefully, I got another. You know, the word out about the politics guys. But one of the podcasts that I heard about there was one called Your Primary Pay Playlist, hosted by Emily Tish Sussman. And I really like what she's doing with the podcast. And it's basically kind of covering the Democratic primaries from, as you pointed out, Jay, that the issue is an issue-oriented kind of perspective, which I think is really important. And I thought that instead of just me kind of telling you about her show, I'd actually invite Emily on our show so that she could tell you about it herself. And so yesterday we recorded a really brief conversation and I'll just uh, let that put that in here right now. So here is my very brief conversation with Emily. Emily Tish Sussman, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thrilled to be on with you. You know, I thought before we talked about uh, your primary plays, you could tell folks a little bit about you, your, your background, uh, who you are, and then maybe why you decided to start your podcast. So I've worked in federal politics for about 15 years, both on campaigns and in federal advocacy in Washington. And I felt like I just knew so many amazing experts that that weren't getting their platform out there. People just weren't getting to hear from them in the same way that I had access to them. So, you know, looking at the 2020 presidential primary, I'm looking at the candidates, my friends are looking at the candidates, and we're all kind of having this con same conversation that there's some candidates we might feel more favorably about than others, but we kind of like the whole field. And we couldn't really figure out not just wh which candidates to evaluate, but we couldn't even figure out the criteria how to evaluate them. Mm -hmm. Like if there were some issues that we cared about, we didn't really know where to go to get the information to figure out if their platforms aligned with our personal values. Right. So with those two things in mind, I thought, all right, well, let's get these experts that I know and let's give them a platform. We want everybody to be able to hear from them. And that's how the podcast came about. 
Yeah, and I think it's such an important service because with such a large field and and so many issues, it, it really can be daunting even for people who do this for for a living, like like you and me. And so I think it's it's just really great to see everything you've done and how helpful I feel it is in in getting pe- giving people a sense of how to kind of sort these things out and and make make their decision. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about with the show is you uh, made a decision to feature women. And I, I thought you could maybe talk a little bit about why you went in that direction. Yeah. So all of our experts on the episode are uh, all of our experts on the podcast are women. And the reason that we decided to do that was because I felt like there were all these incredible experts that I worked with that I knew um, when I appear on cable news. They're the ones that I go to to really help explain the issues to me. But from working with them, I knew that they didn't always put the effort into promoting themselves. So even though they were, you know, categorically the expert in a field or one of the experts in a field, they may not be as well known as some others. So when we thought about creating a platform to, to help, you know, we would end up elevating whatever guests we came on. And we thought about creating that platform for them. It, it would just felt like a natural decision to make sure that we were bringing in women. Mm. The other piece of that is that I really do feel like the only way that we're going to normalize women in power as a concept is if we hear women's voices talking about really wonky, substantive issues. And we don't have to couch it in being in our relationship to others and being a mother or a sister or a a partner. We can just hear women talking about wonky issues. And so that was incredibly important to us as well. Yeah, I I think, you know, it seems like the political commentariat is still largely middle-aged white guys, essentially. And so it is kind of nice to get some of that, some of that diversity and hear some different voices for sure. Uh, And you know, as well as I do, that the majority of voters in many states are women. Yeah, absolutely. Women are the majority of the electorate. So let's hear about a person. Let's hear about some analysis of policy from women who work in the fields. Yeah, definitely. So for listeners who are interested in giving the show a try, definitely you should. I, I highly recommend it. What would you, where would you recommend they start? I mean, I, I just started from the beginning. I listened to your, your intro and then right into your first interview and talk about starting impressively, an interview with Speaker Pelosi. And, uh, but, but for people who, uh, you know, who are just new to the show, what would you suggest? We've definitely had some incredible women on and we're honored to have Speaker Pelosi on. I think for people who are looking, who have been following the primary and are really looking to dig in, there's no question that healthcare has been dominating so much of the primary conversation. I mean, it's basically the first hour of every Democratic debate. So I'd say the healthcare episode featuring Dr. Alice Chen, who's a healthcare policy expert, is a great one to start with on policy. And for those who want to learn a little bit more about the actual nominating process, I'd recommend the interview with the CEO of the DNC, Seema Nanda. She really gets into the nitty gritty details of, you know, the differences between caucuses and primaries and what happens at the convention. So that's a great place to start as well. Yeah, and, and I feel like you can't go wrong with any of the episodes. But uh, but but anyway, I really do appreciate you taking the, the time to talk with me about your podcast. And and listeners, I definitely encourage you to get, to give it a listen. Thank you so much. It's great to be on with you. OK, so, Jay, you know, before we go, I wanted to mention one final thing, if I if I might. Yeah. So Absolutely. I am. 
Yeah, well, you know, it, it, this is actually rules. more of a confession. I mentioned this on Facebook. I am, I am a, an addict, Jay. <laughs> I, I am specifically, I am a sourdough hard okay. pretzel and uh, dipped in peanut butter addict. And, and it's, a, I got a monkey on my back, man. It's, it's bad. And I, I decided okay. I needed to do something about it. Now, this isn't just a personal confession, but a lot of the research on breaking bad habits says you need some kind of an incentive and you should make your pledge to break your habit public. And so I said, okay, do I love mm-hmm. sourdough hard pretzels and peanut butter more than I dislike Donald Trump? I don't know the answer to that, but I'm going to find out because I made a pledge that I will quit my pretzel and peanut butter habit for two weeks. Uh, and if I don't, I'm going to donate $50 to Donald Trump's reelection campaign. Uh, that, that is my public pledge that I'm making right now. That would be a painful thing for me to do. Uh, Kristen has agreed to be my referee monitor on this. So I check in with her every day. Uh, now, of course, I'm on. She's not, she, she's not there watching me with a spy camera or anything. No, not but I am. I am on the honor system. But I think you'd agree that I'm a, you know, I'm a, 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 a honorable kind of guy. So uh, that is my pledge, and I will let people know if I manage to do that. If I do end up having to cut a check to the Trump campaign, I will definitely post probably a picture of that check and my the pained look on my face as I do that, the defeated look. But uh, anyway, so I guess the Democrats will wish me luck and Republicans will hope that I succumb to the allure of uh, Snyder's of Hanover and, uh, and Santa Cruz or. Well, I, I mean, I think it's the other, the other thing that you're, you're up against, of course, is the, uh, you're yeah. up against the big pretzels, you know, uh, big pretzel industry and the, the, uh, the, the inherently addictive, uh, <laughs> uh things that they put into their pretzels and the, uh, false advertising that, uh, have, have tricked you into this, uh, and trapped you in, in right. the cycle of addiction. So I, yeah, I wish I you well on your sour- journey. We need, we need some kind of more, a, a ban on some kind of nighttime sourdough or something like that, because it's really. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, where's, where's the FDA? It's or someone needs to be investigating uh, this. That- All right. Well, Hey, uh, we, we are done, but not really, because as soon as J.I. and I are done recording this show, we're going to be doing the special supporters exclusive after bonus show. And I think this week we're going to be talking about uh, gerrymandering in North Carolina. The North Carolina gerrymandering has been a topic for a while, and it's recently in the news again. And also uh, locking up uh, President Donald Trump, at least as a lot of people at the World Series seem to want to do. And also this week, Will has the quick take for supporters at the $5 a month level or higher. And if you're a supporter, that should be in your podcast app by the time you hear this. And of course, as I mentioned before, we have a bunch of supporter stuff. Check it out. Go to patreon.com slash politicsguys or politicsguys.com slash support. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can at mail at politicsguys.com. There's also our Facebook page, which is new and improved because we have this new uh, no meme or nasty ad hominem attack policy, which a lot of people really seem to like. I know I sure do. Um, I got to say, Jay, there's something kind of very inherently pleasing about seeing some kind of attack like that and just hitting boom, delete, saying, no, we're not going to have, we're not going to deal with that. So, you know, yeah, I know. I yeah. love it. Anyway, that's facebook.com slash politics guys page. That's, that's, that's how it gets. Yeah. Uh, Kim Jong-un likes it too. No. Uh, anyway, and we're on Twitter at politics guys. And Hey, if you haven't subscribed to the show yet, it would really help us out. We would appreciate doing that as well as sharing episodes and rating the show on Apple podcasts or wherever you happen to get your podcast.
with executive producers of the Politics Guys, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, and Daniel Toe. Today's show is produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.